1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Please be seated. my first year, in my first year of university, I met sloth. Now, I don't mean that I finally hit the point of giving up on education. What I mean is that I literally met sloth. Now, his real name, I think, was Jamie, but to everyone else in our freshman halls, he was sloth. Sloth by name, sloth by nature, for sloth never seemingly left our halls. We never saw him in any class or in the library. We often saw him with a pint of beer in his hand, celebrating various rugby wins. But that was the only time we ever saw Sloth not sprawled out on the common room couch. Indeed, the whole first year college experience seemed to pass Sloth by from that couch. But as a result, Sloth was one of the most regular attendees at our whole group Christian Union meetings. For as a hall group, uh, we'd often put on talks entitled uh, What is Grace? or debates on, on the truth of Christianity. And because we'd host them in the common room, we'd always end up hosting sloth. For their sloth would be on the couch, fast asleep normally, as God's grace was preached. Sloth was one of the most memorable characters of my freshman year at university. But one far more memorable character was Andy, for Andy was my best friend in my freshman year of college, and Andy, well, he was the very opposite of sloth. For active Andy had it all, academic prowess, athletic build, affluent parents, aunt with a villa in Barcelona that we'd enjoy. Andy was a summa cum laude sports science major, and if Andy wasn't in the gym, he was in the library. And moreover, and as a result, Andy didn't sleep through any talks about God's grace. Now, Andy would often organize them for people just like Sloth. For Andy was a passionate evangelist. And so someone who became evangelism secretary of the whole university-wide Christian union by the time we reached our senior year. However... As our college days ebbed away and as the real world beckoned us, 
Andy was suddenly not seen at Christian Union or at church or, or even at the gospel events that he'd planned. In fact, the next time I saw Andy was one year later, just outside another university campus. And the days leading up to our meeting together had been fantastic ones. I'd been preaching to some students about God's grace with a number of other postgraduates, and many undergraduates had received the gospel that we preached. Indeed, I vividly remember walking across campus that spring night, the sun setting on a brilliant week of evangelism, and my excitement about God's grace being so high. But when I met Andy on that Friday night, not at any gospel event, but in a shadowy pub, my fears were confirmed. For Andy was now earning a ton of money and was just days away from marrying his atheist girlfriend. And as I reminded my dear friend of the gospel, which we had both seemingly trusted, Andy told me that on the contrary, he, quote, liked Jesus, but never really believed in God's grace. Andy was no longer standing on the truth. Andy was no longer holding fast. Andy had believed in vain. Well, this morning, in a sense, we join the Apostle Paul in a similar situation. For Paul, at the time of writing, was very happy and full of gospel encouragement. And yet, at the same time, he was clearly heartbroken at the thought of old gospel partners believing in vain. For Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus, and it was springtime in Ephesus when Paul wrote, and Paul had enjoyed a really fruitful ministry there, but Paul was also deeply concerned about brothers in Corinth 200 miles away. For as we've seen, the Corinthian church was a mess, because seemingly just like Andy, the Corinthians had begun to fall in love with the world, for Christianity was not successful and prosperous enough to them. It was not sexually permissive enough for them, not, not strikingly powerful enough for them. And as a result, Paul writes a letter to address each of those concerns. But as Paul concludes his letter here, as we get into the last two chapters, he gets to the most worrying aspect of their behavior. For could they actually, verse 2, do an Andy? Could they no longer be standing on God's grace? Have they believed in vain? Uh, accordingly, point one this morning. God's grace in vain? God's grace in vain, question mark? Let's reread verses one and two together. Now, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if... If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you have believed in vain. Can you see we're not actually in a sloth situation? Because look at verse 1. You Corinthians, you receive the gospel. And so in a sense, the message of God's grace, which Paul had, had preached to them, verse 1, was not in vain because they had listened to it. You know, friends, the first stumbling block to the gospel it is not overt sin or secularism or sexual license or, or just wanting more stuff. It is sloth. It is the inability or the refusal to bother to listen. God's grace in vain 
when people do a sloth, when they come regularly to the place where the gospel is preached and yet they sleep through that glorious news. And so this morning, as, as we begin, let me ask you to think honestly, might that be you? Might it be you? Are you metaphorically a sloth on the couch as the message of grace is preached week on week? Children in this room, teenagers here, could that be you? For this message of grace in Jesus Christ that you hear Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that this message is not just for mum and dad, it is for you. And so don't just stare off during the singing or snooze your way through all the scripture readings, or sketch your way through the sermon. Mr. Matt and I love receiving those portraits of us that you draw, those two eggs behind the pulpit, one with glasses, one without glasses. I'm not seeking to ban doodling in the sermon, but please, don't be like my teenage friend Sloth. Listen to the gospel preached. Receive it for yourself, stand on it, hold fast to it. Because mum and dad, they could do lots of things for you, but they can't believe God's grace for you. Don't let all these sermons that you hear be in vain. Don't be like sloth. You've had the great privilege of hearing the word, whether you wanted to or not. As you've sat here every Sunday to be a grown-up and wake up and stand on the word for yourself. If you want to know how to do that, Come find me afterwards, or even better, talk to your parents who are sitting next to you. However, as I said, when it came to Corinth, God's grace was not in vain in quite that sense, because the Corinthians had received the word. They had not done a sloth. But God's grace was potentially in vain because some of them were in danger of doing an Andy for verse 2, if you hold fast to the word. In short, Paul asks, are you in danger of losing God's grace because you have become absolutely obsessed with the world? Indeed, to employ Jesus' famous parable in in Mark 4, are you in danger of being the soil amongst the thorns where the word was sown and the word was heard and yet Mark 4, 19, and yet the cares of this world and the desires for other things came in and they choked the word. The Corinthians were being choked by the things, like like Andy, they they still liked Jesus, but he was not Lord, because they had begun to crown other things. That their good news was Jesus plus, Jesus plus, plus something else impressive in the world's eyes, Jesus plus scholastic sermons, chapter two, or Jesus plus sexual self-indulgence, chapter five. Jesus plus social snobbery, chapter 11. Jesus plus spiritual spectaculars, as we saw last week. And because of their Jesus plus mentality, because they had fallen in love with the world, they were in danger of believing in vain. And friends, that is what the evil one longs for. If he can't get us to throw away Christ completely then Satan will try to get us to to hold on to something else more tightly until our grip on grace is loosened and mere belief in Jesus' lordship becomes vanity. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Screwtape Letters, puts it like this, as he pretends to be an experienced devil advising a younger devil on how to get a Christian to believe in vain. 
my dear Wormwood, writes the senior demon. The real trouble about the set of experiences your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but his bond remains mere Christianity. And what we as demons want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind which I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and psychology. Christianity in the new world order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity in the supernatural. Christianity and vegetarianism. If they must become Christians at all, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Substitute for faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. And can you see that that was what was happening in Corinth? Popular modern fashions with, with Christian colorings, modern belief and behavior with, with just a splash of Christ, applauded social passions with just a dab of Jesus. That is what this church was beginning to hold fast to. And the result was that the main thing and the plain thing and the same thing taught by Paul from day one until now was slowly beginning to slide through their fingers because of a Christianity and mindset. And my friends, for some of us, it, it might not be Christianity and faith healing or Christianity and, and vegetarianism. But what might the Christianity and be for some of us? Christianity and conservative political reform? Christianity and sexual liberty for all? Christianity and social transformation? Christianity and whatever my Twitter tribe says? What sort after fashions might you be substituting for simple faith? What do your friends and family say that you really take a stand on? You're really holding fast to? That simple gospel of grace, when you first believed in Jesus as your savior, that simple word of God preached when you first repented and saw Christ as king. As Paul reminded the Corinthians with tears then, as I reminded Andy 20 years ago now, as I remind us all here today, Verse one, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word. But what was this word preached? What was this good news proclaimed by Paul? What must they hold fast to lest they believe in vain? Well, in verse three, we are given that explanation. For point one, grace in vain, question mark, uh, verses uh, one and two. At uh, point two this morning, grace explained, uh, verses three to eight. Point two this morning, grace explained. If you look down at verses uh, three to eight, Paul gives the Corinthians a little summary of God's grace here. And as the biblical commentators all highlight, this, this six verse summary is thought to be one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have. In fact, scholars trace this, this summary creed here to around just five years after the resurrection. And consequently, these words were actually not first coined by Paul. This was the gospel song that many knew by heart. This was the chorus that had been reverberating around the Mediterranean and was turning the whole world upside down. 
And if we look at it carefully, we see that there are two, two essential parts to it. For firstly, in verse 3, the first explanation of grace that they and we must hold on to is Christ dying for our sins. That is the first explanation of grace, or rather we might say the first essential of grace. For verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And so can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that Jesus did many important things in his life. He was born in miraculous circumstances, and he grew in wisdom and knowledge, and he healed the sick, and he fed the poor, and he challenged the graceless with God's mercy, and he taught the lawless God's ways. But of first importance, that which Paul received, and that which Paul received from who? Well, obviously from Jesus, because that is who appeared to him and taught him. Paul received from Jesus as of first importance that Jesus died for our sins. And so the focus of every eyewitness account is his death. Have you noticed that? His death makes up a massive part of every single gospel. For that was the heart of Jesus' ministry. For Jesus himself said, Mark, at 10.45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came as king. He was clearly Lord of all. But he did not pursue a chair of power, but rather a cross of penalty. Because in his own words, Jesus came to serve, to do the job of a waiter. And the main meal that he served up was his life. His life was given up as a ransom. He died for our sins. Our gracious God and heavenly Father sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins, the misdemeanors of you and me. That is the of first importance, first essential of God's grace that we must hold on to. Today is Father's Day, and as a result, I was reminded of a book that I got my father uh, for Father's Day last year. Uh, It was the autobiography of one of our favorite uh, English comedians, a chap named Bob Mortimer. And at one stage in his autobiography, Mortimer vividly describes the moment in his life when he came to understand and to hold on to grace. For when he was just eight years old... Mortimer was left alone in his house with a gift from his parents, a box of fireworks. And in his own beautifully humorous prose, this is what happened next. I kept on reading the alluring box. And while looking at all the descriptions on a packet of sparklers, I noticed that it contained the warning not suitable for indoor use. But I managed to convince myself somehow that this really meant that they were suitable for indoor use, but that you just had to be very careful. (laughs) Basically, I thought the warning was there because people do use them indoors, but the firework makers didn't want to take the responsibility. And so I took a match off the mantelpiece and I lit a sparkler. Needless to say, it was a big mistake. For a cascade of sparks fell down into the open box of fireworks, and the contents started to fizzle and ignite. And panicking, I grabbed the whole box of fireworks and I threw them into the kitchen. And I watched in horror as fireworks exploded across the floor, spun around the lino rug, and flew at the window like trapped flies. I was helpless. 
I just stood there. The kitchen was left with huge scorch marks everywhere. My heart was pounding. If my mum found the kitchen in this state, I would be murdered. And so I set to work to try and clean up the mess. I knew it was fighting a losing battle, but the better I thought I could make it look, the less trouble I would get into. And so I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed. But after a while, I suddenly became aware of strange noises in the lounge. And when I walked back in, I was met with a wall of flames. I'd obviously dropped a firework in there, and since 1960s nylon, and foam furnishings are only slightly more fire retardant than petrol, the whole room was ablaze. I quickly ran outside to my next door neighbor, Miss Best, an elderly splinter, and I banged furiously on her door. My house is on fire, my house is on fire, I shouted. She replied, you know what, I thought it was. <laughs> Fireman arrived shortly afterwards, but by this time, dense black smoke was gushing out of the front door and the windows where the glass was smashed open. The house was a write-off. But what I remember most was my mum arriving home and getting out of the car opposite our house. She was clearly looking for me, and when she spotted me, she ran over to me, and she gave me a massive motherly hug. Friends, that is the picture of our sin that we see in the Bible. And so in Mortimer's story, we see something of verse 3. For in it, we recognize how our sin works as we ignore the maker's good instructions. And we think that God is just out to spoil our fun. And in it, we, we feel something of our regret for our sins as we light the, the, the match of desire and then try to deal with all its consequences and as we scrub and scrub and scrub with tears, hoping that the better we can make it look, the less trouble we'll get into. And in it, we sense something of the magnitude of our sin as we realize that sin often spreads that those small sparks often end up creating infernos until we see that our lives are a write-off and certainly no longer inhabitable for any heavenly father. But in his story, despite what Mortimer says, we, we don't really see the grace of verse 3. Now, of course, his mother was amazingly gracious to him. She sought after him. She bent down to him. She hugged him at the height of his distress. And likewise, Christ, when he comes to us, he does that. He comes seeking us. And he bent down at the height of our distress. And he, and he hugs those who are mortified by their sin. But that is not God's grace in full. That is not the depth of grace in verse 3. For God's grace in Christ is not sin sympathized with, overlooked, and hugged out. God's grace in Christ is sin mourned for, and rescued from, and paid for, and renewed. You see, a more accurate tale of God's grace in Christ would have been if Mortimer was, was suffocating in that fire that he had made for himself, and if elderly Miss Best next door had acted and she had burst in and rescued him from the flames. And yet before Miss Beth died, through her rescue of him, gave Mortimer the keys to her untarnished home next door and said with her dying breath, live in my house with your mother and father. The house is of the same value. It is yours now. There are no stains in my kitchen and there is no fire in my lounge. Friends, that is the fuller picture of grace. 
and verse 3 and what it means that Christ died for our sins. For his death was not an expression of sympathy for our sin. His death was not a picture of his love despite our sin. His death was an act of rescue and repayment and renewal because of our sins. His death means that we are rescued from God's judgment when he returns home at the end. His death means that the the written off house is paid for. We've been given a new home, the very life of the Lord Jesus. His perfect, unstained, unblemished home of righteousness that we may dwell with a God who now has no reason to be cross with his disobedient children. All is paid for. And so my friend, if you are here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what you must receive. This is what you must hold on to. Christ wonderfully died for your sins. Indeed, there is nothing more as a church that we would long for for you this morning that you would receive grace and stand in it and hold on to it such that your confidence when you meet your perfectly heavenly father one day would not be because you tried hard enough to remove those stains through through religious effort and morality and church attendance, but your confidence when your perfect heavenly father returns home would be in the immovable fact rooted in history that Christ has died for sin and so rescued you from God's coming wrath for he has provided you with a new and safe and wonderful dwelling place for you. First essential of grace, that which we must hold on to is Christ died for our sins. But the second rock solid essential of grace, which is really the heartbeat of this chapter, as we shall see in the coming weeks, is that verse 4, Jesus was raised. As you can see from verse 12, that we'll look at next week, some of the church in Corinth were saying that there was no resurrection. And Paul says, verse 14, if you think that, your faith is in vain. And next Sunday we'll go on to unpack why rejecting that truth will shipwreck a Christian's faith. But for now, Paul highlights not the implications of not holding fast to the resurrection, but rather the irrationality of not holding fast to the resurrection. For Paul says that the message of grace I delivered to you can be believed, can be stood on, can be held onto because it is true. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he gives four evidences of that truth. I wonder if you can spot them. The first one is, is that we've already looked at. Verse 3, that Jesus died. Jesus was able to rise because he died first. So Jesus did not swoon at his death, as liberal academics of the 19th century thought. Nobody fainted during a crucifixion and then wandered off into the crowd to look for some band-aids. And Jesus' body was not switched at death, as many Muslims believe today. The Romans knew what they were doing. These people were trained executioners. Numerous non-Christian sources tell us that, that Jesus died. And so we know that Jesus was able to rise because Jesus died first. And likewise, secondly, did you notice there in verse 4, he was buried. His burial was the ultimate verification that Jesus really died. He was able to rise not only because he died, but because he was actually laid in the realm of the dead. And thirdly, we know that Jesus' resurrection was true, such that we can stand on it, such that we can hold fast to it, 
because it was all of God's plan. You see that in verse 4. In the same way, verse 3, that his dying was in accordance with the scriptures, as we saw in Grady's reading of Psalm 53 earlier, his rising, verse 4, was also in accordance with the scriptures. In short, we can hold fast to God's grace because the resurrection was no plan B. Jesus did not tell his disciples, listen, if I end up dying amid all this social transformation, then let's just plan on saying that I wasn't really dead, for that will aid the legacy of my moral message. No, Jesus said, Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and on the third day must be raised. And this was not just in accordance with Jesus. This was in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 16, God's promised king will say, you, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And so Jesus really died so that he could beat death. And Jesus really buried so that he could rise. And Jesus really fulfilled the scriptures. And finally, we can hold fast to God's grace. We can stand on the truth of the resurrection because, can you see next, he said he appeared for all to see. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter in verse 5. And he appeared to the 12 disciples, verse 5. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, verse 6. And then he appeared to James, his brother, verse 7. And then he appeared to all the apostles, a wider group in the 12. And then last of all, says Paul, he appeared to me. Corinthians says, Paul, you can stand on the essentials of grace because it is true. We have eyewitness accounts. This diverse group of people saw it and were willing to die for it. I love how the preacher Charlie Screen uh, describes how this diversity of eyewitnesses gave him confidence uh, for his own belief. For Screen asks, have you ever thought what kind of evidence it would take for your worst enemy and your best friend to simultaneously believe that you have risen? Because that is what Paul writes here. Jesus' best friend, Peter, and his once worst enemy, Paul, believe because they trust the same evidence. And moreover, he says, have you ever thought what kind of evidence it would take for you to believe that your own brother rose from the dead and was God himself, just like James did. It must have taken unquestionable evidence and an appearing that they could never deny for them to have all kept believing. And that same eyewitness evidence to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ as recorded in the pages of history, that amazing display of unrivaled power over death is why you and I can keep holding on to. And you know, when I was at university with the likes of Sloth and, and Andy, this was why many students like me held on. For we look carefully at the eyewitness sources. And as I said, we put on debates about the truth of Christianity. And we debated that the veracity of the original primary sources. And why the apostles would be willing to be martyred for a lie. And we argued rationally. 
with Richard Dawkins fans and the, and the, the new atheism of the 2000s who said that science shows that people don't rise from the dead. But my fear today is that amongst students and young people, the historical truth is not really why people hold on to faith or not. For people are not looking for verification for their beliefs, but rather vibes. For many today, hold on to belief if it still feels good. If you're feeling those resurrection vibes, then you believe it. Friends, without wanting to sound a, a very grumpy old man, that is foolish. For vibes will not sustain your faith. It is the historical eyewitness truth by which our faith should stand or fall. It is the evidence that should keep you holding on to the Lord Jesus who promises to save you from death. Two years ago, my mother sadly discovered that she had lung cancer and that it spread significantly. And for a number of weeks, it was very worrying indeed. But wonderfully, Wonderfully, about a month or so later, doctors discovered that it was a very, very rare form of cancer and that it was amazingly treatable with new drugs from Germany. Now, these drugs had been proven. They had been proven to, to raise people from such sickness. The, the evidence was there that people facing death lived. And so she trusted the evidence and she began to take them. And amazingly, you know, those German drugs worked, and my mother is still alive today. Praise the Lord. But imagine if my mother had thought, well, I'm just not sure about taking these drugs, because I'm not really, I'm just not really feeling the association with them. Because, well, you know, they're made in Germany, and the Germans fought us in, in, in two world wars, and they always knock us out of the World Cup. So I think I'll just do whatever English people do. Friends, I hope you see that that would be absurd. For in serious situations of life and death, veracity trumps vibes. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then surely that changes everything that we think is worth holding on to in life. It does not matter how you feel about Christianity. It does not matter whether you feel an initial association with Christians who also take that medicine of the resurrected Christ in the face of death. It is about looking at the evidence and it is about working out whether it is true. And so as a result, let me encourage you here, again, if you're not a Christian, not just to leave here analyzing the kind of vibes you felt this morning, but to leave here determined to analyze whether Jesus' resurrection is true. Come and talk to someone. Come and talk to someone you saw up front or talk with a friend that you came with. Go home and, and don't just take my word for it, but look carefully at the evidence. If you haven't got a Bible, please just take the one in front of you. It is not stealing, it's yours. Because that is the essential message of Christianity. That is a summary of the truth of God's grace, which is rock solid enough to stand on. Christ died for our sins and Christ was raised. Don't believe in vain, says Paul. Remember the grace that was explained to you. And finally, remember how grace was proclaimed to you. How grace was proclaimed to you. Final point, last two verses, grace proclaimed. 
In verses 9 to 11, Paul moves from God's grace proclaimed to the Corinthians to the one who proclaimed that grace to them. And so Paul begins by speaking of himself and by confessing that, that he, that the, that the teacher of grace that they heard was, well, look at verse 9, the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would Paul seemingly underplay his reliability at the very time when he wants them to hold fast to the grace that he preached to them? Well, the reason is because his life and his leastness proclaim what God's grace was all about. Indeed, he effectively said that in verse 10. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, Paul says, if you want to hold on to that grace, which I proclaim to you, look at the one who proclaimed it to you. For I'm the least of the proclaimers of grace. Of all the apostles, I'm the least. In fact, I'm the worst, for I persecuted proclaimers. In fact, in another letter, Paul writes just that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy. I receive God's grace for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul proclaims God's grace by reminding them of what he was. Nothing short, nothing short of a malicious, modern-day religious terrorist. One who stirred up crowds against the proclaimers, those who said Christ died for our sins and that he was raised. One who would pelt Christians with rocks until they bled to death on the streets. Friends, there was no better proclamation of God's grace than Paul. And so can you see, God not only accepts, but he powerfully uses the least, the unworthy, the very persecutor of the proclamation to proclaim his grace. Uh, Maybe someone here this morning just needs to be reminded of that. Maybe you sit here this morning and you are named after a sin like my friend Sloth. Maybe you're so characterized by evil that that people even have renamed you by it and you feel like the least. Maybe you sit here this morning and you're like Andy. You've been given everything by God. Academic prowess, athletic build, affluent Christian parents, aunt with a villa in Barcelona. And you threw it all away at college for the sake of the world. You rejected God's grace that was preached to you when you were growing up, and so you feel like the least. Maybe you sit here this morning, and metaphorically, you feel like Bob Mortimer, aged eight years old. You did not read the maker's instructions. You lit the match of desire and have lived with the consequences ever since. And you've tried really hard to scrub away all the stains, and yet you know that you have burned down the house of your life, indeed it has become uninhabitable even to you 
You feel like your remaining years are a write-off and you feel like the least. Maybe you sit here this morning and you actually feel like the Apostle Paul. You genuinely think that no one has committed a sin like you. You really are the least in this room. Friends, whoever you are, can you see that God's grace here is enough for you and you are still able to proclaim it? God's grace in Christ, says Paul, could be proclaimed by me because I am the least. Verse 10, his grace towards me was not in vain. And yet can you also see finally in verse 10 that God's grace to him as the very least was that which caused him to work hard in proclaiming God's grace. Again, middle of verse 10. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any proclaimer. Can you see what was still spurring Paul on to proclaim God's grace for three whole years in Ephesus? And yet at the same time was now still helping him to write to these Corinthians who are in danger of not holding fast to grace. Paul worked really hard in proclamation because he meditated on God's grace through his own leastness. According to friends, if we're finding it hard in this season to work hard to proclaim if we're struggling to tell our friends the gospel, if we haven't proclaimed God's grace much since our university days, well, might it be, who could it be, that one reason is that we are no longer meditating upon our own leastness? J.C. Ryle wrote, many are willing to risk all consequences in proclaiming their affection to their savior. But a low and feeble sense of sin will always produce a low and feeble sense of salvation. A slight sense of debt to God will always be attended by a slight sense of what we owe for our redemption. Friends, God's grace reflected upon should cause us to work hard in proclamation. And so for those of us finding proclamation of God's grace hard, that is your homework, that is our homework together to reflect upon your leastness. But if we're not struggling, if we're still in those heady university days of, of evangelism, if we're still regularly witnessing to our neighbors and all our colleagues, well rejoice like Paul if that's you because you know what? Even your desire to proclaim grace, that is God's grace too. Verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace was proclaimed through his leastness. And so that grace motivated him to proclaim grace. And even that desire to proclaim grace was God's grace. Like some kind of everlasting circular waterfall washing over Paul again and again and again. God's grace is proclaimed through his leastness. And then God's grace causes him to proclaim God's grace. And yet even his proclamation is God's grace with him. Friends, we're going to sing now of that amazing grace that it may wash over us once more, that we may hold onto it today and desire to proclaim it tomorrow. But first, let's pray. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for saving us by your grace. And yet, Father, we confess the desire to sometimes long to leave it. For, Father, we confess sometimes a struggle to stand in it, to hold fast to it. So, Father, we pray that the grace proclaimed to us would not be in vain. We, we pray that we would revel in the simplicity of your grace, your son dying for our sins, rising from the dead to give us new life. And we pray that we make the time to rejoice in its beautiful historical truth such that our faith would be buoyed, such that we would see your grace, what it is, mercy to people like us. And so, Father, would you help us to proclaim it? Give us opportunities, even this very week, to strengthen those who are perhaps wobbling in your grace, to speak to grace of those who think they are too unworthy to receive it. And in all this, may we rejoice in your amazing grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.